This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. There's been some tragedy recently in the Jewish world, most notably the calamity at Mount Meron on Lagba Omer. I'm recording this around 10 days after that terrible event. And meanwhile, as I'm also recording, there's been rocket attacks perpetuated on Israel from Hamas, terrorist organization. And unfortunately, there have been casualties there. And sober times like these force us to reflect a little bit on human mortality and fragility. Our guest this week is someone who lives and breathes that reality as probably the foremost expert in the country, if not the world, in Jewish burial practices and education. The person who's dedicated his entire life to conferring dignity upon the deceased, to instituting practices and exporting his knowledge nationwide and worldwide to elevate the standard of Jewish burial throughout many communities. Rabbi Elchanan Zon is someone I had wanted to speak to for quite a long time and very privileged that a couple of months ago we were able to connect. We spoke before Passover in his home live in New York, both of us having been vaccinated. And it was a real treat, a real pleasure. And again, as we all understand, Death is a part of life, and Judaism has a great deal to say about that ultimate and final stage of our earthly existence. Rabbi Zone is perhaps the greatest embodiment of those lessons, and in particular during turbulent times like those in which we currently function, I can think of no better guest to offer us some perspective and a sense of comfort at the way our tradition approaches this vital topic. Meanwhile, a reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else. Please spread the word about this podcast to your friends and family so that we can continue to grow. Comments, suggestions, sponsorships to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Rabbi Elchanan Zon. We are here with Rabbi Elchanan Zon. He is both the director of the National Association of Hever Kadishas, which is, I guess, sort of an alliance, trade union, perhaps, of all the different burial societies in the United States among uh, religious Jewish organizations. And also, his primary vocation is as the director of the Hever Kadisha, again, the burial society of the Vadra Bottom of Queens, in other words, the local. Queen's Burial Society. So a lot of burial stuff in there, Rabbi Zone, which uh, sounds like a bit of a downer, but I know it's uh, something that's very, very valuable and critically important. How are you, first of all, Rabbi Zone? Thank God we are here um, almost post-pandemic, and uh, we're here. We're getting there, Rabbi, Rabbi Zone has been fully vaccinated as we speak here on uh, March 11th, and uh, I recently uh, got my second shot, so we're both actually sitting indoors, face to face, which is just a miracle. Incredible! I can't. Uh, we couldn't have imagined that a couple months ago, but a real pleasure. So, um, Rabbi Zone, take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about where you are from. 
Okay, I was born in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, at that time, it was not the Hasidic community it is today. It was really a uh, center of Jewish life, um, broad spectrum of Jewish life. Um, the Hasidic community really arrived in the late 50s, um, but uh, it was a very strong Jewish community. I went to yeshiva from early childhood. My parents were, I guess, they were European. My mother, I guess, would be called a Holocaust survivor. She lost her entire family in the Holocaust. Um, a couple of sisters survived. Her parents were killed, and she herself and my father came here right as the war broke out. My father was uh, born in Europe, but came here as a young child, lived on the Lower East Side, and was one of those people who went back to study at the yeshivas in Europe, uh, was in the same group with Rabbi Scheinberg and uh, yes. David Bender. From My father himself was a Rosh Hashiva. They were, uh, so my father was a Rosh Hashiva in Tarvadas at that time, and uh, was very involved, actually, in communal work. And so I, um, that's how we grew up. My, my father was an American citizen, and my parents married in the Mir. Is that where your father was studying at the time, back in the Mir? Yes, 1937. My mother grew up in the Mir. My mother was born in the Mir. Her father was one of the earliest Mir Talmidim uh, students. And so, he, um, so they met and married in the Mir. In fact, Rabbi Scheinberg's uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law were their shatchan. And Is that Shane? Shane, and who also walked them down to the chuppah. Their feature, their life, their early life is featured in All for the Boss. All for the Boss, a great book, sure. Yeah, so that, that, that's my background. So your father was very friendly, I imagine, with many of the people who ended up going to Shanghai afterwards. Right. I have an uncle who was in Shanghai, but of course those were friends. My father was actually studying in Kamenitz when the war broke out. He went, after they got married, in 37 for the last year and a half before. Bar Baruch Ber? Yeah, my father is one of the three people who has smicha from Baruch Ber. So they were living in Kamenitz in September 39, and when the war broke out, my father traveled to Warsaw to get papers so my mother could be uh, able to get... Because uh, she had married an American. She had married an American, so she had a right to go out. And they left on, I think, maybe the last or one of the last boats out of uh, Europe before the war. And they were in Poland at the time, right? Poland at the time. And Poland was invaded in 39 already. That's right, exactly. So they, But they traveled. They, they, they had bombs falling over them. You know, they were on trains that were bombed. They, they went through their own little, uh, you know, thank God, not the worst part of World War II, but certainly they went through a few months of, uh, of war. And uh, then they left and they came here in January of 1940. And uh, so we were living in Williamsburg. We grew up. I went to yeshivas all my life. I got uh, smicha from Rabbinical Seminary of America, Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim. So you weren't forced to go to Torah Vadas where your father was a... I actually went to Torah Vadas in two different times. I was there for first grade. <laughs> Couldn't make it out of first grade? What happened? It was a great first grade. Uh, second grade, I just somehow uh, wanted out. I'm not sure exactly why. I wasn't exactly thrilled. My father was happy. He sent me to a Hasidic yeshiva in Williamsburg, the Tselomer yeshiva. I was there for five years. And there were a lot of non-Hasidic young boys in the Tselomer yeshiva. I guess it was, uh, you know, uh, my father probably was trying to keep me as isolated, insulated as possible. And uh, certainly at Salem had a group of boys didn't have television in the house, things of that nature. So more of a European More flavor. of a European flavor, exactly. And it was, uh, although it was Hasidic, many of the students were not. And so that's how, that was my uh, elementary school uh, background a little bit. 
Um, I went from there to, um, I, I ended up actually in Tells. I was in Bar Park for a year or two in Yeshiva. Uh, then I was in Tells for um, ninth grade. I was, all the years my father would really, I just home studied my English education. Uh, I was learning all day, even from first or second grade on. So by the time I was in ninth grade, which was when I was in Tells, I was really very advanced in my Hebrew studies. So I was actually in 12th grade. While I was in ninth grade, I was 14. I was in ninth grade in English, but in 12th grade in Hebrew. So when I left Tells... In Cleveland? Uh, no, Chicago. Chicago. When I left there uh, as a 14-year-old, I went to Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim and pretty much went straight into the base Medrash and kind of fast-tracked my high school diploma. Which is fascinating because uh, I guess you were socially with a much older group of kids. It, it had its good points and its bad points. <laughs> uh, I won't analyze myself on this. Uh, <laughs> we'll save that for the professionals. Not the forum for this, not the venue, but uh, whatever. So that, that's really my background. I was in Chavetz Chaim pretty much throughout. I, was, I learned there in Eretz Yisrael for a couple of years. I was here and uh, I went through the system, always planning to be in Chinuch. In education. Um, in education, teaching, or the rabbinate, or a combination thereof. And uh, what happened was, actually, when I was a teenager, I was still, I was about, I think I was 17 initially, I happened to attend, I was asked to be a shomer, a watcher. Uh, one night, it was actually a teacher at the yeshiva who passed away. And it was right before, it was kind of intercession. It was the day before school was starting. So I was one of the only people in the dormitory at the time. And uh, for some reason, I was there early. Um, and they asked me if I would go stay with the, with the body, stay with him over, uh, you know, for a few hours. I think we got there at 3 a.m. And I was there till 7. And at 7, the Hever Kadesh, the burial society, came in to prepare the body and do what we call a tahara. And I called the mashkiach and the yeshiva, and I said, you know, the, um, one of the rabbis in the yeshiva said, we're leaving. He says, why would you want to leave? He says, if they'll let you stay, it's a terrific experience. If you feel you can handle it, why don't you stay? Because someday you'll be a rabbi. Most rabbis never get to see this. So take the opportunity and, and use it. So I did, and I was there with another fellow who was uh, also a student at the yeshiva. We were actually chavrusas. We studied together, and uh, we stayed, and it was a very inspiring experience. And that was it. Uh, I saw a tahara. Two years later, the Vader Abundant of Queens, the rabbinical council of Queens, was looking to start a chavr kadisha in Queens. There was no communal chavr kadisha. There were few shuls that had their own tahara group, their own chavr kadisha providing the service for their shul. There's nothing communally. And so they were looking to start. And one of the, they went to the rabbinical council of Flatbush, which was established a little earlier, and asked them how they thought they should do it, and they suggested get some yeshiva students, which is what they had done, and see if they would be willing to pay them a few dollars, and see if they would be able to start a group. And so someone in Flatbush knew that I had seen a Tahara, because he was a friend of mine studying at Chavetz Chaim at that time, whose grandfather was very involved in, I think actually was leading the Flatbush Chavar Kadesh at that time, and he had helped him out a number of times. So he knew that I had seen a tower because I had once mentioned it to him. So he, came, he said, why don't you... That was, that was your qualification, having witnessed one. <laughs> it was one more than anyone else had. So he says, 
Gunnar Hudson, he knows how to do Taru. He, he was there. He watched. <laughs> so I said, are you kidding? And I said, if you get a bunch of guys, I'll be happy to join the group. I said, but I'm going to have to be trained. I have no idea what to do. How old were you at, the, at this time? 19, you're single? Single, 19, just one of the guys in the yeshiva learning. And uh, we had a group of about, um, I'd say six or eight, maybe even 10. Uh, we started, I think, with a group of six, and it expanded pretty quickly. At that time, it was a small thing. We would go out maybe two or three times a week for once or so, which is not that infrequent, but it was, uh, you know, it was what we do in early morning. And uh, that's how the Chavagatisha started. And uh, the, if I tell you, some of those people who are were then... Uh, members of that initial group are world-famous rabbis today, incredible. very incredible people. And so that's how we started. And I stayed with it throughout my yeshiva years, even through my kolil years. I was just one of the guys. I was one of the leaders. I would be a little bit more involved in making sure we had supplies. And you know, I was somewhat in a, but it was just, there was someone, a rabbi from the Vad who oversaw it. And then about 10 years down the road, and, uh, it was 1980, 81, uh, there was somewhat of a crisis. They were looking for younger leadership in the group. And I had just gotten smicha. I had just gotten my ordination. And they asked if I would take over for a year. So I agreed to do it for a year while I was looking for a job in Chinuch. I was actually a practicing rabbi at that point. I had a shul in Queens, uh, a couple of miles from my house. I used to walk every Shabbos. And uh, it, was, it was full. I, I was there every day. It was a full rabbinus. Uh, pay full, <laughs> full time full, full work and I was pay. right and I was uh, you know I was uh, I was involved so I um, I, I stayed with the Hever and I took over for one year actually it took about almost two years till I found the job I was interested in I you know had the shul and I was doing this and I wasn't that pressured and I found something that was perfect and when I told the Vad that I was leaving is how could you leave? Uh, you know, in the last two years, the entire Chavagadish has been turned upside down. We've now increased on services. We've doubled the number of things we do. I started educating funeral directors, running classes for them, doing all kinds of things. So I had kind of taken it to a little right. bit of a different level. And they said, you can't leave. It's a community, uh, you know, organization. And who's going to take over? So I actually discussed it with a number of rabbis. Uh, my own yeshiva, which was offering me this job, didn't want me to stay. And were you a student of Rabbi Leibowitz? In- yeah, I actually, he, he, actually, his, he actually grew up in the same building I did in Williamsburg. So we knew each other from way back. In any case, I, we actually, there was an, uh, an agreement that I would speak to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, of blessed memory, to ask what he felt. And so his answer to me was, I actually flew down to Florida to speak to him. He was in Florida for the winter, and this was going on December time. It was for the next year, but it was uh, December, January. And so uh, he said to me, look, uh, you have every right to look for someone to take your position. It doesn't have to be someone who will be as talented, or as, but he must be someone who's going to dedicate themselves to that degree and do this as a full-time occupation and have obviously some capability to do so. And if you can do that, by all means, you can step out. Otherwise, you can't. And so here I am. <laughs> I guess you couldn't find anyone. <laughs> so now you know the rest of the story. Now you know the background. So that's how are. it happened. So here <laughs> I am. And here we are sitting in your dining room in Queens. So let me, I want to back up a little bit and create some, some points of introduction. First of all, just, I, I would be remiss if I didn't dig a little deeper in some of the family background that you had referenced earlier because... If you could just explain just for context, I mean, your father, it sounds like, 
was a party to some incredible, incredible you know, Jewish leaders and scholars of the last generation. You know, having studied in Europe pre-Holocaust, um, he said he was one of three people who were ordained by Rabbi Baruch Baer, who was one of the great luminaries of the early 20th century in, uh, in Europe. And then also having you know, spent time in, in the Mir Yeshiva, which was kind of the great pre-war yeshiva and the famous story of, of how they escaped almost fully intact, not completely, of course, to Kobe, Japan and Shanghai and just kind of an, a, an epic tale. So your father was a party to so much of that. Did that really bleed through into all of your education and into, into so much of the way that you were raised as a Jew? Uh, yeah, in a very natural way. It wasn't that, you know, it's just this was, this was who we were. Uh, my mother's family was all yeshiva people who went through the mayor. My, my mother was one of three. What was her maiden name? Her maiden name was Gulevsky, but her father was not known by that. He was known by the name Visakar. He was Rabchana Visakar, whom I'm named after. I just heard a story when my mother was sitting shiva for her sister. Rabbi Finkel, who was the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, came to be Menach Mavel, came to visit and uh, visit uh, at pay a shiva call which is highly unusual for a Rosh Hashiva, for a rabbi in Israel of that stature to visit a woman who was sitting Shiva. Even though they grew up together in the same town, but you know, it wasn't done. He came with his wife, and uh, you know, he was there just for a few minutes, and his wife stayed on for a much longer time. But he said at the Shiva that I'm here mainly because your father, meaning my mother's father, my grandfather, was my Rebbe, as a Lamed, as a teacher in elementary school, as a young child, and I feel whatever I am, I owe to him. You know, so that was, you know, that's like, the, I just heard the story literally yesterday. There we go. Uh, yeah, we're actually in the process of maybe writing a book right. about my father. So wow. my brother mentioned he heard this story. Isn't that beautiful? So did your father, was he constantly recounting tales from no, the old my, country? No, just that. Yeah, my father never, ever spoke, not about the old country, not about the new country, unless it was necessary for a message that he wanted to give. But as a storyteller, wasn't his personality. He was a quieter man. It was his personality. My father worked on never speaking. You know, the Chavetz Chaim Heritage uh, you know, uh, Foundation on steroids. In other words, my father practiced uh, not speaking unless it was necessary to do so. So if it was to make a point, he would speak at any time about anything. But if it wasn't necessary, he was very low key, low profile. But he had a very fascinating life. He was actually, um, as I said, he was Rashivan Tarvadas for almost 20 years. He actually learned with Rav Soloveitchik in Boston. When they first came to Boston in 1940, Rav Soloveitchik had a kollel in Boston, which many of the European... Uh, yeah, Sir Michael Feinstein was there. Fein that, yeah, you got it. That, that kollel, my father was part of that kollel. And my, they left at the end of the year. I think he may have gone to Yeshiva University at that time. Uh, or my father opened a kollel in White Plains, which was actually eventually... Lakewood, yeah, the precursor with Nasser Vachvog. My father was, when he would go to Lakewood, they would ask him to speak because he was one of the founders of the Yeshiva. That's how they viewed him. And I assume he passed away, your father... My father died about seven, almost eight years ago at the age of 101. 101. Right after Rav Scheinberg. They basically, my Scheinberg was about a year older than my father. Oh, and they both lived in Matastar. My father moved to Israel, moved to Israel in 1970. Oh. So he was, I mean, he came back all the time. He had a kollel in Israel, which was what he was doing at that time. 
in Matersdorf. In no, the Kolo was actually in a different place. It was in the Gula. The very end of his life, for many years, was in Gula, a famous shul in Gula, upstairs, a uh, small kolo. And he wrote, my father wrote about 15 svarim. Wow. Um, and he was also very involved uh, communally. Uh, he was like, because he spoke English very well, my father spoke actually a beautiful English. Uh, he was offered a job as a rabbi in Dorchester right after he left when he was in, in that Boston kolo area. in Boston. Yeah. Um, and it was like the biggest shul in Boston at that time, one of the biggest shuls. Um, and he, he turned it down. He asked uh, the Roshivan Tarvadas if he should take it. I think it was he said he asked. It wasn't Reb Ruvain. It was um, who was there before. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But he asked, uh, he asked and he was told not to take it. He doing better as a Rosh Hashiva. Uh, they felt he would get lost in Dorchester. He wouldn't have that big an impact. And he would be more impactful in the Yeshiva. And so he, he did that. But um, I, I grew up in that. That was like... That was just who I was. It wasn't, but my father wasn't type. I heard a lot of stories, and I met a lot of people. I sat on the lap of Rebarin's Achron Levrocha, and uh, you know, I would pick up the phone, and on the other end would say Doret Moshe Feinstein, uh, Moshe Feinstein. Actually, it was, it was Reb Moshe, just uh, looking for him. My father was very involved as a English speaking. He was kind of a liaison for many. He was a liaison for them in many... Sensitive issues. Sensitive issues, communal issues. It sounds like he was also uh, somebody you could really trust as a sort of a quiet... So he would travel to Eretz Yisrael. He got the direction sometimes. Uh, He met with the Chazanish, and he met with the Briskarov, and he met with a lot of those people. was involved in a lot of the... Israeli uh, American issues with the Moetzes and uh, you know uh, involved. He was uh, very involved in the battle to uh, you know stop forced induction into the no oh. forced autopsies later. Forced conscription, first conscription for women, women. specifically. Yeah. Um, he was involved in a lot of these issues, and um, so yeah, he was. But he moved to Israel in 1970, 71. And uh, pretty much lived there the rest of his life. He would come back from time to time for visits because all the children were mostly here. Right. There was one, one, one of my siblings living there at that point already. But um, so incredibly, I knew it's uh, it's funny. I'm going right from this interview. I'm going to JFK Airport, which is according to the maps, it says ten minutes away. We'll see what it actually it, it, is. It, really, it usually <laughs> is about that. No, I mean, ten minutes away to pick up my son, who's coming back from his first year studying in yeshiva uh, in Israel. Uh, which is located just about a block away from where your father lived for, for many years. It's a place called Torres Chaim, which is like a fairly new yeshiva, but right in the center, right in Romema. Uh, very close to where your father was living in Rebbe Scheinberg for all those years. Um, anyway, as a point of introduction, you mentioned obviously this whole story, and I wanted to just ask about your, your father and your, your background, just because I find it so fascinating, and it's a unique opportunity to elicit that kind of background. But in terms of what you've done with your whole career, so you were you were sort of by accident, I guess, in a certain way, by luck, quote-unquote, cast into this role. Can you just sort of give our listeners an introduction of, of two things? Number one, what is unique or special about Jewish burial? In other words, what is the actual process that requires some sort of intervention, right? I mean, people think of, I don't, I don't know that there's burial societies in every community or every religion, you know, out there, right? Imagine there's there's funeral homes and a person passes on and, and there's a funeral home that takes care of it. So what's going on that we need, you know, a bunch of yeshiva students or rabbis or whoever to kind of be engaged? And then related to that, what is this idea of like a community body to deal with this? I mean, you know, the, why can't every synagogue do it or every, you know, I don't know, every neighborhood block, whatever. What What's this idea of a communal uh, institution to deal with it? Let me take the one at a time. We are unique as a people, 
in so many ways. But one of them is how we deal with uh, those who pass on. And it's really based on the fact that we recognize that um, we firmly believe that a person is made up of two parts. We are physical and we're also spiritual. There's also, we are a body and a neshama. I often tell the story uh, very quickly of uh, Noah Weinberg, who was sitting with a young man, and he was uh, trying to encourage him to join the yeshiva and to study as a secular young man who had no knowledge of Judaism. And he said to him, do you think that you have a soul? And the young man thought for a long time, and finally he says, you know, Rabbi, he says, I think I do have a soul. And Rabbi Weinberg said to him, young man, you're making a mistake. You are a soul. You have a body. And so we believe that the essence of who we are is really our neshama. And so when we die, the neshama no longer is able to keep the body active, and it doesn't provide that life force which we have during our lifetime. Uh, there's no interaction any longer, but that neshama is our awareness. That neshama is who we are. It's our consciousness. And that neshama is no longer part of the body, but yet our belief is that the neshama is very present. The neshama will not move on to some extent, uh, whether that means it's fully engaged here or partially engaged is another story, but the neshama does not, is very concerned about what happens with our body and wants to make sure that our body is taken care of appropriately. The fact that the neshama is not just a spirit, but it's actually a part of God himself. God blew into man nishmas chayim, a neshama, a soul of life, a living soul. And so as a container of that soul, the body is deserving of kavod, of respect. The body is not just a physical thing. Once it's dead, it's dead. You might as well just get rid of it. Body is something you wouldn't burn the ark after you take the Torah out of it. By association, it has respect and uh, purity and holiness of its own. So therefore, our belief is that a body is something very unique and very important. And the body needs to be taken care of. In fact, the reason given in the Torah for care of the body is because it is Etzelam Elohim, because it represents someone created in the image of God. So we attach a tremendous amount of importance and serious responsibility to uh, take care of that person appropriately. And how we provide that care is not subjective. You know, every person who dies anywhere in the world, people want to give them respect. But how we define that respect is, just like everything in Torah, is objective truth. And that's really one of the reasons why chesed shall emes, the work that we do is called true kindness or kindness of truth, is because it's kindness defined by Torah semes, defined by our beliefs. And those are objective truth, based on objective truth. And so everyone is treated the same way because everyone is at Salomon Kim. Rich or poor, rich or famous, poor, not famous, ex- right? Or successful, not successful, uh, sage and sinner. Okay, everyone is provided the same thing. Even someone who is, uh, in fact, the Torah chooses to teach us the laws of burial by a criminal. Huh. If we think about it, Torah teaches us in Deuteronomy, it tells us that if a man is put to death by the court, uh, because they were deserving of it, it was not done very frequently, according to what the Talmud tells us, but if someone, they couldn't find any reason why they should spare his life, they finally killed him. The law was that he had to be hung for a short period of time so that as a 
way of uh, being an example for others to follow, deterrent. On the other hand, the Torah says, cut him down immediately so that because it is shameful to God himself to have someone created in his image. Now, this is the criminal. That respect is taught by the criminal making a very important point. Fascinating. That all of us are. I never thought of that angle. That's really interesting. Created yeah. in the image of God. So that is something that we are unique about, all of the customs that we follow. And there are some, mainly it's just very beautiful, natural customs. We wash the person. Uh, there is a ritual aspect of it, of purification, uh, which is actually where the word tahara comes from, which is similar to the immersion in the mikvah. But it's, and then we, we dry them and dress them in a set of clothes that is reminiscent. It's a model by the clothing that the high priest at the Kohen Gadol wore on Yom Kippur when he went into the Holiest of Holies where he wore all white symbolizing purity. And our belief is, one of our basic beliefs is that after 120 years we stand before God and it is our last Yom Kippur, if you will. Mm. And so to stand before God dressed in this set of clothes is meaningful. It's, you know, how do we dress appropriately for this occasion? And our sages tell us that we appear before God and we appear how we do, the body and the soul are together. And we appear before God as a unit. And we appear before God actually as we are in the grave. And there's a great emphasis that the clothing should be neat and it should be clean and it should be respectful so that we appear, everyone's the same. Everyone wears the exact same set of clothing. And what, that clothing is like a simple white tunic? Yeah, but yeah it's a tunic, and it's a shirt, and a pair of pants, and a, and a jacket, similar to the meal, and a belt, really exactly as the Kohen Godel wore. Not exactly, but very much the same, um, and symbolizing all of these very basic beliefs of Judaism. Uh, there are many different customs involved, but that's the general basic, and it's the same throughout the world. Uh, you know, some slight variations in different communities, but by and large, that's what it is. And so it's extremely meaningful, and it's extremely important. Probably the only thing, if a Jew dies, there is a responsibility, actually. The Talmud tells us in Moe Cotton, 27b, of Zion Amid Beis, it tells us that if a person dies, the entire community is responsible to stop working and make sure they get buried. We're not talking about someone who has no family. Everyone. It's not a family responsibility per se, unless there is a Hever Kadisha. There is a holy society that will take care of that, and so everyone's responsibility is taken care of, they assume that responsibility. But if there is no one to take care of it, or if people are not going to a Hever Kadesha because they don't know to go to a Hever, then it's really a communal responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. And so we are unique in that sense, and the law is that a high priest, or any priest, any Kohen, who cannot go to a funeral because they're not permitted to defile themselves because they have to work in the temple. But, and they can't even go to their uh, friends' funerals. They can only, a Kohen, a simple priest, can just go to immediate family. A Kohen Godol can't even go to his parents' funerals or his spouse's funeral. But yet, if they happen to come across someone who needs burial because there's no one to bury them, it supersedes even that. So that responsibility is unique. And the work of the Hever Kedisha is seen as a tremendous kindness. Uh, that person will never repay them for this act. They will never, you know, it's on one hand washes the other, and you know, one day you borrow an egg, and the next day they borrow a cup of milk. No quid pro quo, right? Pro quo, exactly. So it's, and it's kindness of a very, very special nature because it really is a reflection of our core beliefs of Judaism and our core beliefs of the value and the respect that every person is deserving of. 
So that's what makes this mitzvah so unique. And the fact that we are burial societies also defines our cemeteries. People don't realize that. You know, in the other world, uh, in, the, in the general world, you might have religious cemeteries you know, that are for Catholics or for Muslims, whatever it is. But our cemeteries are not only for Jews. Our cemeteries are for, ra you have sections for rabbis, or you have sections of the people of the city of Bells, or the city of Bialystok, or... or, or Kew Gardens. Or, right, or, or a <laughs> section for shochtim, for people who are slaughterers, okay, or people who are tailors. Why? Because we believe that neshamas continue to live, and the respect is for them to be with people like them. So we bury people who are rabbis in the same section. We bury people from a similar background. You have young Israel groups and you have uh, Agoda groups and they're buried together. And that's actually brought down in Halach, in the Talmud, that people of a similar level of observance should be buried together. Similar level of, of, of lifestyle should be buried together. And so that is all are buried in the Jewish cemetery, even the person who is an agnostic, even if the person is, uh, you know, chooses uh, to live a very uh, different lifestyle, whatever it might be. Everyone gets buried in the, in the Jewish cemetery, but not in the same section. They're buried separately, but all are part of that Jewish uh, unity. And that's where the burial societies come in. because, And again, it's all based on our belief that the neshama continues to be aware. When we also believe in resurrection, we believe in Trias HaMais. And when we get up, we want to be among our friends. It's, we choose to live in a certain neighborhood, and we choose to be buried in that neighborhood because that's how we're going to get up. And we want to be with people of a similar background, a similar style. And that's all based on those beliefs. Fascinating idea. Now, the communal... The reason I mentioned that is, yeah, in every shul, and even today in the larger shuls across the world, there might be a Hever Kadisha of that shul for that shul or for that neighborhood or whatever it might be. Going back to 1970, when the Hever Kadisha of the Vatarabandim of Koreans was founded, there were probably three, maybe four or five shuls in the entire Queens that had a Hever Kadisha of its own. But there were hundreds of thousands of Jews living in this area, and there was no Hever. Everyone dies. Right? Everyone dies. Death in Texas. The, the, <laughs> the incidence of Jewish people having Tahara was under 5%. Really? This was our challenge. It was under 5%. People went to Jewish funeral homes, and they assumed that by going to Jewish funeral homes, it was being done right. And the funeral homes gave the impression that they were burying traditionally, meaning they were using shrouds, but they were not using the appropriate shrouds. They were not being dressed in accordance with all the different traditions that we follow, and so on. So they were just dressed in something that was pretty close to what shrouds should be, and some of them may have even been correct, but it was not done appropriately. So there was a need when the Vadhar Abundant, when the Rabbinic Council first established itself and the community began to grow, they felt a need that they have to provide this service to the community and there's no greater communal responsibility if everyone must stop what they're doing and take care. So that is what became the issue. And, um, you know, so it's, uh, it was just very, very uh, much needed. And so we started a, uh, we started the Hever Kedisha at that point. And it sounds like you did a lot of education. Right. So what I did, particularly after I took over, this is where I took my frustration at not being a rabbi or in teaching, 
and took the Hever Kadisha to a level where that I spent, that became my pulpit, that became my mission, that became my kiruv, that became my outreach. And so the goal was to encourage funeral homes to make the tradition something that they would offer, and not only offer, but they would encourage. So there was a lot of education of funeral directors and cemetery workers and, and people involved in the industry upgrading how shrouds were made so they were made more appropriately. I mean, just all kinds of areas. Is their motivation generally a, a capitalist one? In other words, you're creating sort of a competitive landscape and, you know, this funeral home's doing it, so now that one's got it? Or do you think that they really were authentically moved to learn about these ideals? I think... Very little of the idealistic part, it was mostly capitalist. Okay. However, they recognized that the future of Queens was in the Orthodox world. And we made it very clear to them that if they are to have our business, and if we were going to be comfortable using them, that they had to be at least sensitive to our needs, and that they could not do that if they weren't promoting it to everyone. In other words, if they were just saving it for the Orthodox and will accommodate you, right. a special not, service. A, a special service, we're not going to be comfortable there. Because if an Orthodox Jew calls up a funeral home and the guy at the other end says, well, you can bring your clothing anytime until 10 o'clock, they know they're in the wrong place because who's bringing clothing? We're using a shroud. Okay? So obviously, that, so they now have to, we taught them, or I taught them, I encouraged them to say on the phone, are you going to be doing this traditionally and therefore you can uh, you know, come in? Or you don't even have to come in. If you just want the traditional package, then we know what that is and we'll accommodate you. Or if you'd like something else, would you want to do? So this became a way in which I was, we were able to encourage them to promote and encourage and explain the tradition in very uh, positive ways. And so, and it, it was something that really grew across the city, actually. I was involved you know, much more than just in Queens, eventually, because all of these funeral homes, they had, there, in fact, there was an organization called, kind of about that very important organization at that time, founded in 1962, if I remember correctly, called the Tripartite Commission on Jewish Funeral Standards. Huh. And the tripartite, which is really means three parties, was the Orthodox Union, the Rabbinical Council of America, and an organization called the Jewish Funeral Directors Association of America. And they had a group that would meet from time to time to set standards for Jewish burial. And I actually got involved with them as part of the Orthodox Union initially because someone, actually someone in this neighborhood here, who was involved with that organization, or one of the shuls in this neighborhood was one of the few active Chavez Kadisha, the Kew Garden Synagogue. Um, at that time, the rabbi was, I, I believe, Rabbi Rosenzweig, or it might have even been the rabbi before him. But whatever it was, one of their fellow members invited me to join him at one of these meetings. And the rest, as they say, is history because I you know, just spoke up from, with a lot of experience and knowledge. So the Orthodox Union represented the Chavez Kadisha themselves, and then I became a member of the RCA. So I actually sat there wearing two hats, the RCA hat and the, and the OU hat, and uh, you know, we worked on a lot of different programs. So all of these things became you know, very, all, this all helped create uh, you know, a national movement. Um, this organization unfortunately petered out in the early 90s, and at that time I kind of started the National Association of Herakadisha. Not really as a replacement of that, but uh, there was, I was doing a lot of 
lecturing with the Orthodox Union mainly, and so I started doing it under this national brand, mm-hmm. um, so that we could, you know, increase our reach and so on. But eventually, like to some extent, we have assumed some of the things that the uh, tripartite. And essentially, what you're doing is pulling together different Hever Kaddishes, different of these burial societies, nationwide. Right. And does that include whether it's a small synagogue one or it's a large city? It's everything. Okay, now obviously there are many Chavez Kaddisha, particularly in the New York area, that uh, in the Hasidic communities that are very strong and have very strong customs, and they have their own funeral homes very often, or work with Orthodox funeral homes, so they, their need for our services are much more minimal and much, more, uh, much less necessary. However, uh, we are on a typical day, we're on the phone with Chavez Kaddisha, probably from 10 or 15 places around the country, and even many places have happened to be very close with the Chavez Kaddisha in Melbourne, Australia, which uh, helped them work out some of their issues and do things. So uh, some, I have very little to do with the Israeli Chavez Kaddisha other than issues that come up in shipping. I mean, right. For example, this year we had some very significant issues regarding COVID, um, and unfortunately they gave an impression that people in Israel who had COVID would be buried in double pouches which is very complicated halachically, but the fact is that's what the f- official word was. The reality was that, yeah, they were brought to the grave with these double pouches, but at the grave they opened them, and since they don't use caskets, the body was basically directly in the ground. But that wasn't out there in the press. So we were fighting funeral homes across the country said, well, if Israel could bury in double pouches, mm. why shouldn't we? So this became an issue. But this year was a very, very difficult year for Cheres Kaddisha because of the intense fear initially of, of uh, the pandemic and the danger it posed not just to members of the Cheres, but to their families and their children not being able to go to school and their elderly parents who they may have uh, need to take care of and or lived with. Very complicated. So it's been a very difficult year. It's difficult because in terms of doing Tahara's with someone who passed away from COVID, was concerned about a risk from right. transmission from a, from a dead body? Well, that was one, in my opinion, the much less important risk. Uh, that was the risk that I think people were most afraid of, but that wasn't the real risk. Because people, bodies, when they die, people, when they die, the, the virus, the bacteria, basically dies along with them. They're, they're, you know, in studies, you might find traces of uh, bacteria right. weeks later, even or sometimes, depending on which virus, which bacteria you're talking about. But the fact is that Taharas are generally done by four people, and they're in very close proximity to each other, and they're almost breathing on each other because they're right together over the same body, and they're lifting a body, and they're you know struggling with it. So it's 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 complicated. So what we did almost immediately is create protocols for how tahara could be done, which had the support of uh, Rabbi Doctor Aaron Glott. Uh, he was my guru, as he's been for many years on these issues, and also um, many of the rabbis, both Rav Schechter initially, and then um, Rabbi Willig and uh, Rabbi Shmuel first. You know, whatever Rabbi Schechter originally agreed that he backed off a little bit because um, he was getting reports from Chevers that were very frightened about using, uh, even with proper protection. I imagine you gave, you know, full-length PPE. And- right, exactly. It was only with PPE, and we also created uh, modifications where we encouraged people to do many things on their own. In other words, first, they should gown up, they should drive separately, right. gown up separately, and uh, do certain parts of the preparation all separately. And then when they came together, we modified the tower so that it could be done in a rather shorter period of time and cut certain corners, particularly if things were a little more difficult. 
Uh, if we used water, we insisted on face shields. Just a lot of them using bleach in water, which uh, decontaminates as we do the process. There were just a lot of things that we were able to do, but it was very widely received across the country, very well accepted uh, by m many Kavras Kadisha. Some Kavras Kadisha did more. The one thing we really pushed hard for is that no one should be buried in a double pouch or in any pouch. They should be removed, at least that, even if it means having someone from the funeral home who wasn't even Jewish have to help. But the idea was to at least put them in an aron, and if we can dress them, at least cover them with tachrikim so that they would at least have that. But most of the larger Chavar Kadisha, certainly our Chavar Kadisha here, uh, many others were doing uh, you know, a fairly typical Tahara pretty early on. And um, you know, we, we went through crises in the past. AIDS was a, mm. a, a phenomenal crisis. Uh, in the, before 1985, we were doing Taharas without gloves. It wasn't uh, done. The funeral directors, many of them weren't really careful about gloves. Um, and then when AIDS came out, we realized that uh, you know things are transmitted by blood and by other things, uh, and it you know AIDS at that time was almost a death sentence, you know, and it was transmitted by blood. So everyone began using gloves. So that's when PPE became a real issue at that time. So we just followed through with that. But we thank God. I often have said that. In, thank God I've been lecturing and doing this for many many years. I don't know anyone who has gotten a serious disease from a Tahara. I know a lot of people in Kharaganisha have back issues, <laughs> including myself. I've had a hip replacement and I still have serious back problems. Okay, and I can attribute it, I'm sure, in part to the work that I've done. Um, you know, having done tens of thousands of Taharas. But at the same time, it's uh, you know, uh Hashem, I mean we've we did countless Taharas on AIDS cases before we even knew there was AIDS. We just knew afterwards by the, you know, that we had done this without gloves and having come in contact with all kinds of things. And you, know, you have a cut in your hand, it's a baruch Hashem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Again, on the other hand, I'm not in any way suggesting that we shouldn't take every precaution. And we did, and we still do. But at the same time, there is, uh, you know, and our sages tell those who are involved in the mitzvah sincerely and do whatever they can to protect themselves, have a certain level of protection above that. That's uh, divine. What are the services that you're providing in terms of this national sort of trade association? You have groups, you have a guy who calls you up in Montana, I mean, or, or wherever from a Hever Kadisha. What are you providing for them? So the most basic service is really education. Um, you know, we provide, this year we did a webinar, actually of a Tahara process, but I've been, we've lectured, I've lectured across the country, um, large and small communities, just teaching the basic Tahara process. Now, what we have that we can offer is experience. Okay, so it's just experience, not changing the tradition, but making the experience more efficient, easier, and at the same time, even more careful and more sensitive. But it's just, this has been our focus, and we can just give them ideas. Uh, it's also helping them navigate the industry. Problems with, uh, problems with uh, funeral directors, just like we had this year, funeral directors who would not allow Hever Kadisha in, or would not allow them to do anything if there was a COVID case, or uh, cemetery issues. Um, a lot of guidance, to Are you getting involved intervening directly, or is it more you're telling, helping 
guide the local people how to respond? It's, it's both. We will, first of all, you know, provide just training. But we will also, we have a hotline where we answer phones 24 hours a day, except for Shabbos, uh, while people are in the middle of a tahara, where they will say, we're facing this situation. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I will sometimes get pictures on my phone uh, where they will send me a picture of something and say, what do we do with this? Okay, we encourage them to have certain supplies, to have certain uh, things. There. We tell them, we teach them the techniques. Okay, so it's a lot of that. But it's also shiva cheers that we provide, uh, you know, uh, we sell some of these supplies that are not as easily uh, found, okay? We, uh, so there's a lot that we can do. It's also, uh, we, you know, we provide, we have a website uh, with a lot of things, Zion Adar, which is the seventh day of Adar, the day that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, was born and died. It was the day on which God buried Moses because that was the day he died, okay? And that was one of the, it's the last act in the Torah, actually, is God burying Moses on the mountain. And it teaches us that God himself felt that this mitzvah is so important that he gave his student, his his servant, Moshe, Evan Hashem, right? Moshe was his closest servant, the greatest human being who ever lived, um, according to the Rambam, okay? Um, he took care of himself. So he gave prominence to this mitzvah. So that day is chosen as the day that many Chavaz Kadisha uh, use as a day of celebration, the day they get together, many Chavaz fast. So we actually provide them with them in the last few years, inspiration during those days. This year we had a Siyam Hashas uh, of Mishnayis on that day. We encourage Chavaz Kadisha around the country to join us. We provide the Slichas that are said that day. We have them on our website. We provide just all kinds of support to Chavaz Kadisha around the country. So it's guidance on all, uh, in all aspects. And we also uh, provide a lot to Chavez Kadisha that may run into problems with cemeteries, okay? Even mistakes that happen. How do we deal with a particular issue? What type of monument should be accepted, should not be accepted? What is an appropriate, uh, should be, so we get calls like this on a regular basis. I, I just uh, took a call about someone who wanted to know if a person who died out of the country and it's gonna take till Tuesday uh, to get them buried in Israel, should we do it or should we bury him here and forget about Israel? Okay. Right. So, you know, the, the, there are just an endless amount of questions, requests that people leave. Are they appropriate to follow or not appropriate to follow within halacha? Uh, there are just countless questions that come up. And cemeteries themselves who turn to me for guidance. I mean, we're able to, Baruch Hashem, uh, have a lot of input um, as to how cemeteries operate on some level, maintaining a higher level of, uh, of comfort, a higher level of, of respect. I mean, you know, we've been very instrumental here in the New York area, getting cemeteries to stay open um, in the summertime. If there's a real need, they will stay open at least until daylight is, uh, you know, not every day. They're not going to do this because unions won't allow them. But if there's a real need to bury someone immediately. Yeah, or something happens where people are on the way and there's a delay and it's going to mean they're going to come in an hour late. Uh, when in the 19, when I started in 1970, someone died at nine o'clock in the morning. There was no way that burial was going to be that day. Uh, even if someone died at six in the morning, if they didn't have an exact grave location and at nine o'clock it wasn't called in, that just didn't happen that day. Uh, holidays, there were no burials, okay, on legal holidays, religious holidays. And just to clarify, in Jewish law, there's a premium placed on uh, a burial happening quickly. Immediately, as, as immediately as possible. 
And as I often say when I lecture about this, what happens with, uh, you know, if it's a Friday, it means nothing till Sunday. If it's an Erev Yantiv, you're talking about not just waiting two days of Yantiv, but you're about a family that's going to have to sit Shiva for an entire week after a whole Sukkot or after a whole Pesach because they didn't start Shiva until Chalamoid. If they were able to begin Shiva before the holiday, mm-hmm. the Shiva would end with the holiday and they'd be able to move on with their lives. So it's a very, there's a lot at stake. We've gotten them saying, now we've had a situation, people die at 12 o'clock and are buried by four. <laughs> and you know, everything, you know, we, we've brought things to a very different level. Very efficient. Again, in New York, out of New York, it depends where, in some places. Uh, so th- these things, and of course, a lot of my early work dealt with medical examiners. Mm, the autopsies. 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 Stopping autopsies. Because again, from a Jewish perspective, autopsies are... Strongly discouraged. So, well, it's seen it's seen as disrespectful, especially it's invasive, and it's not necessary. Now, where there's a federal case involved where someone is uh, potentially is going to catch someone who committed a crime, uh, we're not going to be able to stop it. But even there, we have protocols on how it can be done in the most respectful way, and uh, we've done a lot of work on that on that with medical examiners. Uh, we encourage people to have halachic living wills. We, I'll, I'll just digress for a little bit. You know, we have been working very, very much over the last few years on cremation, okay? But before I go into that, I will tell you that um, we were involved with, um, we were involved with stopping autopsy. And it's very important outside of New York City where, or New York State or even New Jersey, where the state has a law requiring medical examiners to accommodate an objection on religious grounds. Mm. Outside of New York, it, all, it really exists very, it, it doesn't exist in many states. There, Ohio has something, Illinois has a, a kind of a, a protocol that they've agreed to. There are some very, and we have relationships in Florida and certain counties uh, where there is a strong Jewish community in Los Angeles, the Aguda has done some very good work, but on the books, only New York and New Jersey and a couple of other states have something that requires them to have religious accommodation. However, where someone has something in writing that they object to autopsy, that is extremely helpful. And if in some states that will carry the day, that will require them to accommodate. In some states, certainly if you go to court and you can show that they are opposed to it and there's no overriding need to do an autopsy, um, then they will accommodate that. So we were encouraging people to sign some things, which meant that we, uh, the Aguda Living Will, Halachic Will, which is a will in stating what one's preferences are medically at the end of life, but it also speaks about the afterlife and designates an agent to take care of that person after life. And in it, there is an objection to autopsy. So we, uh, we began talking about these issues because we kind of expanded to medical issues, end-of-life medical decisions, encouraging people to do living wills in a halachic traditional way, which is much more concerned about sanctity of life and maintaining life rather than quality of life, which is where the world is going. So we kind of moved off into that, but it really was an outgrowth of this issue of uh, autopsy. We were trying to get people to put something in writing, but even more so, we have been very, very active in encouraging people to bury rather than cremate. And so 
we wanted people to be able to not just agree to bury, but to have something in writing. So, uh, but it was very hard to get people to just say, uh, to sign something that says, I uh, object to the autopsy of my body, and I, uh, I, I do not want to be cremated. No one's going to do that, okay? Uh, even if they mean well, it's just hard. How do we sell that? So what we actually happened was an outgrowth of a story that was a fascinating story about a woman who was 105. Uh, her father was actually, her uh, father came to America in 18, late 1880s, okay? She was born in 1905, okay? And her father had studied by Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Hanan Specter, who Yeshiva University is named yeah. after, okay? And she herself left a small town where he was a shochet, he was a rabbi and a shochet, her uncle was the rabbi, he was a shochet, whatever. And she went to New York to try to make it, in, uh, make it on the stage, to make it as an actress. She became, left tradition. Married someone who had this idea that he needed to be cremated. He himself was cremated. And everyone in the family, it was a very big family. She was the last of eight children. And many of them were not traditional, no longer orthodox. Most of them became secular over the years. But everybody, and everybody knew that Aunt Ethel was getting cremated. However, Three generations later, she had a great nephew who became Orthodox through Robertson Young Rise, okay, and Hineni. Uh, he became, went back to practicing tradition, moved to Eretz Yisrael, married, and he would visit her from time to time. He actually stayed with her in Manhattan where she lived when he was going to school. They became very close, and he would talk to her about burying rather than cremating. And at one point, he visited her, and she said to him, you know, Isaac, I'm going to be buried. I decided. She was 102. And he knew that she had a will stating that she wanted to be cremated. And the guy who wrote the will was her nephew, which was his cousin. Uh, he called the lawyer and said, you know, Ethel agreed to be buried. Please make sure to change the will. And he said, no problem. We'll take care of it. The fact was she died three years later. It never changed. He obviously, in his defense, at this point, he was halfway to dementia. He wasn't even a, the, the nephew. The nephew right? Well, she was 105. He was in his late 80s, okay? He wasn't oh that much. I mean, now this great, great nephew was in his 30s. Ah, I see, okay. He, in fact, when he was challenged at the time that she died, you know, this cousin said, I know she wants to be buried. Please show us the will. He refused, and not only refused, but went to Europe on a trip for three weeks. So this woman, we fought it in court because we knew she wanted to be buried. We weren't going to allow her to be cremated. She ended up, for four months, there was a court battle. And because there was nothing in writing, the writing had a will. The writing had a pre-need arrangement for her to be cremated. No one ever changed that. So this nephew who thought he had won the war had actually won a battle and lost the war because he never got it down. So it was a fascinating story because it went to court, and in court, a woman showed up whom nobody knew from the family who was, used to visit Ethel because her mother was best friends with Ethel. This was an older woman who herself became Orthodox and was living in Crown Heights, was married to someone from Chabad. And she would visit her, and she would always say to her, Ethel, you're getting buried. You've got to get buried. And finally, she told her that she's going to be buried. Two separate... Uh, two separate, right, exactly. And not only that, but this woman got her a grave right next to her mother. And I'll tell you how that happened. Her parents had bought two graves in the Jewish cemetery. 
But her father wasn't Jewish. So when her father died, they realized they can't bury him there. So they buried him elsewhere. So now there was a grave next to her mother. No one ever going to be buried there. So she said, I have the perfect grave for you, Ethel, right next to your friend, my mother. And despite all that, she ended up cremated. So it was a very, so that taught us that we really need to have something in writing. So that's when our organization expanded into living wills, and we created a card called the Emma's Card, which has your agent for medical decisions, as well as afterlife decisions, your alternate agent, the rabbi who will make the decisions halachically and help the agent decide what is appropriate or not. And in that card, having all this information, it says, I object to the autopsy of my body. I object to the cremation on my body. And we've been encouraging shuls across the country to have this. We also want people to know that if someone agrees not to be cremated, get them to sign it, because it has witnesses. It's actually a semi-legal document. The beauty of this document, it attaches to your license. Mm. So it actually will be found if and when you are ever in a situation of an emergency, you will have that. I would like to move on if that's what I'm... Yeah, please. Now, I, I just wanted to ask you in very brief, if you could just... Sorry, I know we only have a few minutes left. If you could just summarize kind of the common objections or the common reasons that people promote cremation and sort of what those are. So I, I'm, I'm going to say that there are... It's very, I have not really gotten my arms around cremation. I, I can't understand exactly what drives it. And I think in many instances, it's just a few factors together. There is one factor that's very obvious, and that is cost. A typical funeral today is $10,000, if not more. Burial plots are the biggest problem, because even if you can get a cheaper funeral, the burial plot in most Jewish cemeteries today starts at about four or $5,000 across the country. Then there's a grave opening charge. So for a couple, you're talking about $15,000 at a minimum, okay? That's a huge expense. Okay, so that's one thing, it's cost. But in many places, it's sold as being more environmentally sensitive. Why? You're not using space. It's a waste of wood. Chemicals that go into the ground that are toxic. Now, that's true if you are burying someone embalmed. The embalming fluid used in the embalming process is toxic. But traditional Jewish burial does not permit embalming. So traditional Jewish burial, which doesn't use any fancy wood, it uses a simple pine box and is really very natural. There is no embalming fluid. Is uh, really as green as you can get it. In fact, we opened a cemetery in Florida, our organization opened a cemetery in Florida two years ago called the South Florida Jewish Cemetery, and we bury people at a very reasonable price, and for nothing if we have to, we bury people who are indigent. 70% of those people whom we are burying and who are purchasing uh, graves in our cemetery were going to be cremated. And for them, in Florida specifically, because there are so many older retirees there and the cost of living has grown and their Social Security just doesn't do it, in Florida specifically, it is driven mostly by cost or very largely by cost. If you go to California and you go to Manhattan, it's more an environmental objection. Environmental, it's also, this is what is being done today. Cremation is now almost 60% among the American population. Among Jews, our estimate is somewhere between 40 and 50%. It used to be minuscule just 30, 40 years ago. 
And it used to be that people would, would think of it in terms of you know the, the Holocaust. And- Holocaust too, but I will tell you that some rabbi, and I believe I know where it started, because it was about 20 years, five years ago, a reform rabbi, I believe, in Florida actually wrote an article where he said that he has no objection to Jews being cremated because of the Holocaust. In fact, he can see this as being a way to identify mm-hmm. with the victims of the Holocaust. And so he actually revolutionized in the non-observant Jewish world the thought of cremation as it relates to the Holocaust. And many Holocaust survivors, some of them prominent survivors, chose cremation for that very reason. And you know, my response to that, obviously, my response to that, but it's, it's fascinating. And one of the things I teach is that in order for a person to be able to fully experience olam haba, the world to come, and our belief in resurrection, they need to be buried. It's just like you put a weed in the ground and it regenerates. Okay, into an, We believe that when you bury a person, there is a regeneration. That's one of the reasons we bury is to is as a reflection of our belief in Trias HaMesim. Wouldn't the pushback be that people will say, well, look, someone who's been martyred or, you know, they don't have that opportunity. Right, so the question is, what about them? The answer is, there's a Gemara that tells us those people will come back from nothing, but that's because they were martyred. They have that special privilege. God created the world from nothing. He'll bring them back. That's not for them. But if someone chooses cremation and in essence is making the statement that I don't really believe in this stuff, that's a whole different story. So therefore, I was, I was once lecturing and this exact question came up. What about the Holocaust survivors? You're trying to tell me they're not going to be resurrected? I said, what are you talking about? Of course they're going to be resurrected. And there's actually a Gemara that teaches that. I just don't have the time to go through it. It's a Gemara in Gittin. talks about young men who were being taken to Rome to be slaves, and they jumped into the sea, and one of them said, well, what will be with our world to come? And the answer was, there's a special passage that says, I will return you, okay, from between the teeth of lions, I will return you from the depths of the sea. It's a passage in the Pereksamaches in Tehillim, okay? And the idea is, so the Marshal explains that to mean that their question was exactly this, if we jump into the ocean, how will we ever come back? And the answer was a special privilege. So I was lecturing in New Orleans. Oh, my father's from there. I remember that the lecture was entitled, What Happens When We Die? Or When I Die? And it was a fascinating audience. I had an imam, had priests, nuns, Chabad rabbis, regular rabbis. It was wild. And I mentioned this concept, and a Chabad rabbi said, what about the Holocaust? And I mentioned this, and I told him that they're in a different category. And as I'm leaving the, or it was very well received, and as I'm leaving the uh, lecture, a woman comes over to me and says, Rabbi, can I speak to you privately? And she tells me that she has it in her will to be cremated. And the reason is because she wants to be with her mother and her sister, who are both cremated in Auschwitz. And I said to her, can I ask you a question? What would your mother have given on the way to the gas chambers if she was told that for this, we will bury you somewhere in a Jewish cemetery in Auschwitz after you die? What would she have given? She thought about it. She says, probably her right arm. She had nothing else to give. What could she give? I said, so you're telling me that you want to meet up with your mother and your sister? I said, what would your mother say to you? She would have given up anything to be buried, and you're choosing not to be buried. 
I said, frankly, I don't know if you'll meet up with her if you make that decision, but if you do, I don't think she'll be very happy. And she agreed. She, she, she says, Rabbi, I, I'm going to change it. Okay, but I'm just saying, so these are arguments. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of guilt involved. People who never visited their own, their own parents in cemeteries, they don't want to burden their children. Mm. So there's just a lot of cultural influence. You know, we live in a world where everyone's doing it. It's just the progressive thing to do. People see themselves as progressive. Uh, it's the liberal thing to do. By the way, the worst thing in the world for the environment is cremation. Do you know how much fossil fuel is used? It's three hours at 1,800 degrees, a typical cremation. you know how much fuel is used? you know how much carbon goes into the air, not to mention uh, all kinds of chemicals that go into mercury and all kinds of things go into the air that are toxic? Terrific. It's all a sales pitch by an industry that is realized they were losing customers and made it very palatable from an environmental perspective. There are green cemeteries. Our cemetery in Florida is actually certified as a green cemetery. We do not use a backhoe in the cemetery. Every grave is dug by hand, which in Florida is very easy because it's all sand. So it's easily done, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating place for another time. But what I do want to end with is a message. There is very little in Judaism that is more important than to see a Jew be buried correctly with respect when they die. As we said, it's the only thing a Kohen Godel can defile themselves for. It's a responsibility of everyone. We as Jews who are observant, who are knowledgeable, have the opportunity to reach out to our brethren and to open a conversation and to explain to them that we as Jews believe in an afterlife, we believe in resurrection, we believe in respect for the body as a representative, as something that relates to its celebration, that was contained the holiest thing, peace of God himself, okay? We deserve that respect, we deserve all of these things, and to just open the conversation, to show what it means for family to have closure, to show respect, to be part of a family plot generations of family unity all jews get together in the cemetery why be sprinkled in the pacific open the conversation and if you can accomplish it with one jew it's a zuchus you will take with you forever it's giving another jew an opportunity for a better eternity i can't answer what will be but we do know one thing burial is part of the process of atonement and if we retard that process then we lose that opportunity. It's an extremely important part of the entire process. We know death is part of a process of atonement and burial is part of that process. Give them the opportunity to have their children show them respect. Give them the opportunity to learn how we respect another person, even in death, certainly in life. Okay, reach out to others. And for those who may be listening who might be considering cremation, consider it very carefully. It's a decision that is an eternal one with real implication, implication for how you are viewed by your family, how everyone views, how every other person in the world views every other person. We are all deserving of basic respect that burial provides, that cremation really makes a mockery of. Such a beautiful message, and we'll link to the, uh, the website where people can see it. Just one final question, Rabbi Zoon. You know, there's an old, I think it's a Seinfeld joke. He says, you know, they, they ask people what the uh, people's greatest fears are in life. I think uh, number two was death and number one was public speaking. 
is that it comes out from there that people would rather be the guy in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. <laughs> but it obviously contains a, a grain of truth in the sense that people do have a great fear of death, obviously the great unknown. I'm curious, just from a personal level, somebody whose your entire life has been dedicated to the concept of death, how has it impacted your own perspective on this great equalizer that all of us look towards at the end of our time here? Sense of humor. <laughs> you know, you learn, it's amazing, there's a Yiddish expression that says we should never be tested as to what we can get used to. Sounds much better in Yiddish. And the fact is, you know, when you live with something, you can actually just block it out because you need to, you have to. On the other hand, if you can use it to maintain the sensitivity that you need, it could be a phenomenal positive. So it's a balance. I deal with this within my own Hever Kedisha. We talk about this in Hever Kedisha gatherings sometimes. The need to maintain our sensitivity to others because you kind of everything can become just routine. commonplace yeah. and routine. So you need to work on it. I guess there are people that would be broken by it. I think when you're involved on a level where you're doing this regularly and you're able to reach out to people and help them because we very often are dealing with people who have survived a death around them, it helps you learn how to cope and how to deal with it. It's a privilege because we have the opportunity to really face death in a very real and positive way. So when we wake up in the morning, we say, Mo Ani, and we say, not because of I thank you, not for the Lexus in the driveway and for the beautiful family I have and the job that I have. I'm alive. That is the core of, as a source of our joy in life, is the fact that we are here and we have the opportunity to do and accomplish and serve God in whatever condition we're in. Okay, so it's, it's something that we are privileged by being involved in this work. And it's something we struggle with like everyone else because, yeah, there are times when things are, are down, especially a year like we just went through, where we were surrounded. I mean, at some days we had 40 cases all one day, okay? I mean, we're a big service services, the whole, the whole community. It was overpowering, but, you know, everyone unfortunately dealt with it this year. And uh, maybe we were a little better equipped to be able to deal with it in a certain sense. But it, it, it's been a struggle. Um, on the other hand, we take a positive from everything. We can use life and use challenges to grow. Such a beautiful message. Rabbi Elchanan Zone, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege. Hatzlach on your great work. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.